So I usually focus on just one scripture from the lectionary for my sermons. Some pastors I know try to find common themes with two or more of the lectionary readings for any one Sunday. But I usually find that there is more than enough theological material in one text to write a sermon. That's often enough for a whole series of sermons. Today, though, I will focus on both the Old and the New Testament scriptures together because they're closely related to each other. The Exodus passage tells the story of Moses going up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the laws of God. The Matthew passage tells of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountaintop. Listen now to God's word to us from Holy Scripture, from Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come again to you, until we come to you again, for Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. From, from Matthew 17, excuse me. <coughs> Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, 
saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. In this story, Jesus steps out of the realm of humanity and into the world of the divine. And what are we supposed to make of this? Children seem to be able to accept the miraculous, the divine, the out of the ordinary, in a way that we leave behind us when we reach the Piagetian stage of formal operations. Uh, I know we have a lot of teachers in the audience, since, uh, in, oh, excuse me, in the congregation, not audience, um, and uh, you probably know what the, those Piagetian stages mean. Formal operations is when we leave behind um, uh, living in the concrete uh, world. Just a few verses after this text, Jesus tells his disciples that the children and those like them are the foremost in the kingdom of God. To be open to the world of the miraculous is a blessing in Jesus' eyes. But many of us in this scientific age are wary of talk of miracles, perhaps even scornful or mistrustful of such talk. And yet, we will willingly enter into that world with a child, won't we? Our conversations with Gabriel, our grandson, and increasingly with little Bennett as his language grows by leaps and bounds, our conversations are filled with the miraculous and the otherworldly. And we would no more tell them to stop talking such nonsense then we would tell them to stop practicing their reading and their writing. We enter that world gladly with them, admiring their vivid imagination, that imagination that Gabriel's mom wishes perhaps weren't quite so vivid when it comes to bedtime and scary monsters. My point is that Jesus upholds this innocence and this natural sense of wonder and belief in the miraculous that is such an important part of the child's world. As we start to examine this story, we must in some way deal within ourselves with the miraculous elements, with the otherworldly happenings here. We have in these two scriptures then, two stories of encounters with God. The disciples who were with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, would have had no trouble bringing to mind the story of Moses on the mountaintop as they watched in awe and wonder the scene unfolding before them. The transfiguration of Jesus is clearly closely linked to the story of Moses' encounter with God in Exodus. Both occur on mountaintops. 
symbolic places, according to Anna Case Winters, where earth and heaven were thought to be close. She also writes that the transfiguration narrative confirms for the Jewish believer that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah, that he is closely linked to Moses and the prophets, and that he is indeed the fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies. Those of Matthew's time who hear the story of Jesus should be confident that God's reign has indeed begun with the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now the disciples are right here with Jesus, a full part of the action. I had to read this over again a few times because in in my head, with the transfiguration, I somehow see Jesus Christ as, as far off and the disciples over here, but it's not the case. The disciples are right there with Jesus. He doesn't go further up the mountain to be with Moses and Elijah, but he remains close to the disciples as the two ancients from the heavenly realm join them all. Only Jesus is changed, his face shining and his clothes becoming dazzling white. Now, when Moses returned to the people after his time on Mount Sinai with God, his face, too, was shining. In Old Testament times, it was believed that human beings could not look upon the face of God and live. Indeed, later in Exodus, Moses pleads with God to see the face of God. God passes by him but allows Moses only to see God's back. Even Moses cannot look on the face of God. Jesus himself shines with divine radiance, but the disciples are not commanded to hide from his glory as Moses was. They simply gaze on the scene in awe and wonder, until Peter tries to find the right thing to say and do. He offers to build dwellings. In the King James's version, these are called tabernacles. They're a kind of holy dwelling for what Peter understands are three divine beings. Now, as the Israelites wandered in search of the promised land, They carried with them the Ark of the Covenant, believing that God dwelled in that Ark. When at rest from their travels, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the tabernacle, a holy tent. So Peter is suggesting setting up similar dwellings right now. He knows he is in the presence of the holiest of holies, and he wants to respond in a worshipful way. But surely Peter is stumbling around trying to think of the right way to behave when in the presence of the divine, when all he needs to do is listen. 
The words of God, speaking from a bright cloud, assure them all that no such action is needed. God speaks of love. God's words echo those spoken at the baptism of Jesus, confirming Jesus as the beloved Son of God. Now, in the Exodus narrative, there is no talk of love between God and Moses. God remains remote, unseeable, distant, to be revered, even feared. God gives guidance through words, but on stone tablets that must be hidden from view in the Ark of the Covenant. For Moses, God's words are about stone and law, commandments, whereas here in Matthew, God speaks of pleasure, the beloved, and listening. These are words of affection, of relationship, of the divine one's understanding the needs of humanity. But Peter, ever fearful at this point, though in later years he will have the ability himself to perform divine miracles, he and the other disciples are terrified, overcome with fear in the presence of the divine. Have you ever sensed that you are in the presence of the divine? I said earlier that children accept the miraculous and the divine without question. Sometimes the very elderly do, too. There are residents whom I visit with at the nursing home who speak about the presence of angels, about God guiding them through terrifying times, about literally feeling the hand of God upon their shoulder. Of course, this could be related to failing intellect and confusion, but who am I to question someone who has seen an angel? I must confess that I have never, to my knowledge, seen an angel or had a miraculous encounter. But I have had moments when the divine comes very close and my heart leaps with longing to be in the presence of God. Seeing the dolphins surface over and over by the gulf. Watching multiple rainbows form on the Iona sound as sunlight plays over the water. Gazing upward as a flock of sandhill cranes circles and rises on thermal currents, calling to their fellows with that achingly lovely cry singing worship songs and hymns that lift the soul towards the Lord. Seeing my Central American neighbor's newborn baby, so lovingly carried and cherished by her older brother. Are there moments such as this for you? Do you feel as if you could easily leave your earthly self behind? and soar to be with God.
But it is all too much for the disciples. They are overcome as soon as they hear the voice of God. The Jesus they know and love is capable of some amazing deeds and healings, and they know he has divine powers. But when they find themselves in the actual presence of God, they cannot cope. And Jesus immediately understands this. He leaves his divine companions and returns to Peter and James and John. Jesus touches them. God has spoken from the heavens from within a cloud. God's magnificence and glory are too much for humans to bear. And Jesus, fully knowing what it is to be human, understands this. And so Jesus, God in the form of humanity, understanding all the feelings that we experience, steps aside from his divine companions and does exactly what is needed for his disciples. <coughs> he touches them. He lays his hands upon their shoulders to reassure them. And in one gesture, Jesus lets them know that he is still the man, the rabbi, the teacher they know, love and follow. And he also allays their fears, that existential terror that they have felt in God's holy presence. Jesus' words, too, reassure and empower the disciples. He doesn't tell them that they were wrong to fall down in worship and awe and fear. But that's not what's needed right now. He tells them and I'm so glad the children heard this. He tells them not to be afraid. I don't know how many times we're told in Holy Scripture not to fear, not to be afraid, but it is a phrase that Jesus speaks many times. Some sources say there are 365 instances of some version of do not fear in the Bible, but this isn't verified. It is, though certainly a major theme of biblical teaching. We should not be fearful. This is not a promise that no harm will ever come to us. Experience tells us that that is not the case. Bad things do happen to good people. This is the nature of the life we lead. Loved ones die sometimes too young. People we thought we could count on leave us or let us down. Illness disrupts lives. Poverty strikes. Families are torn apart. Our means of financial support comes to an end. These are terrible things indeed, and they will continue to happen and happen even more to the poor who can least effectively cope with such things. But God will be with us. There is no need to live in fear of these things because our God is with us. God will get us through the worst things that we can imagine in life. <clears throat> 
fear only disables us and causes us to turn inward or like the disciples to cower on the ground. Jesus quickly reassures and tells them to get up. In the verses that follow this text, Jesus takes them back to the crowd and the disciples try unsuccessfully to heal a boy with epilepsy. Clearly, there is work to be done in the world and Jesus needs, needs them to develop the faith they need to participate in that work. It appears the disciples have more to learn from Jesus before they are ready to participate in his healing work. They will get there. And we will, too. This world has too many needs for us to be fearful right now. There are many people who try to cultivate fear in us. It serves the powerful to play on people's fears. Our neighbors are not to be feared. They are to be loved. We know who our neighbor is. Jesus made it clear to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan that everyone is our neighbor. With the transfigured Christ beside us, the Christ who both reigns in power with God and who touches our shoulder with reassurance, there is nothing to fear. Nothing can harm our spirit. Amen. Please stand as you are able, and we will say together the Apostles' Creed. <coughs> I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.